Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. This is Internet Marketing. Hello everyone and welcome to episode 144 of Internet Marketing brought to you by Site Visibility at sitevisibility.com and in today's show Kelvin speaks to Rory Sutherland IPA president and vice chairman of Ogilvy Group UK and also expert on behavioral economics and praxeology where you'll find out what that means by listening to today's episode all coming up in Internet Marketing. Rory, I've seen you speak a few times. I've heard you talk about behavioural economics, and I know that praxology is kind of one of the areas that you're kind of tending to focus on a bit more when you're talking about that. What is kind of praxology, and kind of how how does that differ from some of the kind of behavioural economics in general, as it were? Actually, I suppose praxeology was really an earlier attempt to invent behavioural economics in the first half of the last century. Mm -hmm. The word itself goes back, I think, to the 17th or 18th century, but it's a putative science of human behavior, action, and Mm decision-making. Now, what was interesting is that um, uh, economists of the Austrian schools, such Mm -hmm. as Ludwig von Mises in the first Mm -hmm. half of the 20th century, uh, they were actually economists growing up in Vienna at the same Mm -hmm. time as Freud. Mm -hmm. And they were very passionately interested in psychology. And uh, they believed that economics was in fact a sub-discipline of praxeology, that you Mm -hmm. couldn't have uh, a reasonable science of economics, which was detached from a psychological understanding of how people act and behave, Mm -hmm. and indeed an understanding of people's motivations, uh, people's, you know, concerns, um, Mm -hmm. people's idea of risk versus reward, and so so forth. And um, uh, what was quite interesting about this is that I think that was a very, very valuable insight that the Austrian school had, Mm -hmm. uh, which was that actually economics is nothing uh, unless you actually build it on decent psychological foundations. Mm -hmm. A very similar modern expression of the same thought comes from Charlie Munger, famous as being Warren Buffett's business partner, but himself a great passionate adherent of behavioral economics. And his great phrase is, if economics isn't behavioral, I don't know what the hell is. (laughs) Now, what's interesting about praxeology is, in many ways, that the concept was lost, Mm -hmm. that actually new models of economics uh, grew up, which were less human-friendly and were instead very maths-friendly. 
Mm-hmm. What critics of, of certain sort of neoclassical models of economic behavior would say is that economists suffered from a very bad bout of physics envy. They mm-hmm. wanted to make their science just as mathematically clear-cut and just as um, capable of mathematical expression as, for example, you know, the behavior of atomic particles mm-hmm. or the behavior of gas under temperature and pressure and so forth. And so as a result, in order to make... Uh, economics look suitably mathematical, they develop models of human behavior really to suit the maths rather than to suit the reality. Mm-hmm. And in the process, praxeology and the idea that economics is actually subordinate to psychology was lost. Instead, what happens nowadays is you have very large numbers of influential people in finance, in business, in the finance departments of business, in business schools, mm-hmm. who describe human behavior as though correct human behavior should actually conform to economic and mathematical models, Mm -hmm. and that when people's behavior does not conform to this, this is merely a temporary bias or a fault. Mm -hmm. Um, So what they've done is actually they've solved the problem not by looking at the people and working out, they've looked at mathematics and then imposed it on people. Mm -hmm. Now, I think the job of marketers is to challenge this. Mm -hmm. Now, we haven't done a great job of challenging it, in truth, because our own marketing language is frankly pretty rubbish. Mm -hmm. It's uh, as a colleague of mine put it brilliantly, this is Alistair Graham, he said the language of marketing and advertising is a little like the language of astrology, which is if you're talking to a fellow believer, it's fine. Mm-hmm. And if I'm hanging around as an astrologer with a group of astrologers, I can say things like, oh, well, of course, Mars is in the ascendant and he was born on the cusp of Capricorn, mm-hmm. and they all nod along. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, anybody else who isn't a, a, a believing astrologer and hasn't been versed in the vocabulary thinks perhaps rightly, that I'm completely full of shit. Mm -hmm. Um, What I think has happened with marketing is we've created a vocabulary and a language which works for other marketers, but is completely alienating and indeed reputation damaging Mm -hmm. in the ears of uh, the finance department, the CEO, Mm -hmm. uh, city analysts, um, management consultants, anybody who's trained in, in any kind of science mm-hmm. regards marketing language as, based, as alien, you know, or at least profoundly uncomfortable. You know, they, you know, they'd feel no more comfortable, you know, talking in marketing language as Arnold Schwarzenegger would would be talking the language of flower arranging. Mm-hmm. And so, you've created a language which is very uncomfortable for um, a large part of business decision making to actually participate in and to to, to listen to and to adopt. Mm-hmm. What I think behavioral economics does, partly because actually it's linked to economics, it very much focuses on how people's behavior deviates from that mm-hmm. predicted by the classical economic model. It creates a kind of Esperanto of human behavior. Mm-hmm. And this is, I think, what praxeology in its earlier an earlier manifestation mm. of behavioral economics. This is what I think praxeology sought to do. It mm. sought to create a language, a framework, and a vocabulary around human behavior mm. that could be accessible not only to marketers, but also to anybody in business, mm. anybody in economics. I, I think I think you know, having missed you know having missed that opportunity the first time by mm. uh, you know rejecting the Austrian school and many of the good things they said. I think behavioural economics provides us with a second chance to actually revive and create a much needed lost science. Mm. And for, for for people like myself who are perhaps kind of you know familiar with some of the you know more you know Dan Airely and the kind of predictably irrational school of um, you know behavioural economics and nudge and that kind of thing. Do you think there's particular things to look back at the Vienna school that you know are, are particularly compared and that have stood the test of time particularly well? I think um, 
one of the things that the Vienna School did, which, where, which they got absolutely right, is that they had a model of economic value which was absolutely understood that economic value is subjective. Mm-hmm. That's the first thing. You know, a lot of economics has, has played around with models of the labour theory of value as espoused by Marxists and indeed by Adam Smith to a great mm-hmm. degree, in fact. Um, and actually, what the, what the Austrians would have acknowledged is that the extent to which you value something and therefore the extent to which you're prepared to pay for it mm-hmm. is hugely subjective. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's also context-dependent. And this is where it becomes particularly important in digital marketing because the great strength that digital marketing has is its ability to actually communicate contextually. Mm-hmm. You know, everything from search to social to mobile is really, if you use it well, don't you don't use search and mobile and social just to sort of duplicate or replicate what conventional media such as television already do very well, which is creating fame and mental availability. Mm-hmm. Because TV does that extraordinarily well, very inexpensively for audiences of 30 million. Instead, use search and digital and social and so forth to exploit what they uniquely can do and which television can't, which is to communicate in a particular way, um, in a way that's sensitive to the context of the conversation. So one one, one example would be, for example, uh, for, for example, here, um, one, you know, conventional economics suggests we go around with constant preferences and act on those preferences. <laughs> Behavioral economics would would accept that actually we f- we we probably go around actually with a con- with a repertoire of acceptable brands in our head. Mm-hmm. Availability determines saleability. You know, there are certain brands of shampoo, water, electrical goods I can buy with low anxiety. Because Toshiba, Sony, Apple, etc., you know, they have high saleability. That's not quite the same as sales. Mm -hmm. My actual, the process I go through before actually buying something will overlay quite a lot of mental processes on mere saleability. Uh, One of them would be, for example, um, contextual framing. Uh, One of them might be price framing. That I choose from what's available. I don't choose according to a perfect preference I have in my head. I choose from what's available, and my choice is framed by the range of choices presented to me. Mm-hmm. If you, if I go into a restaurant, I'm presented with you know a choice of three bottles of wine that cost five, seven, and nine pounds. I'll probably buy a seven pound bottle. If I if I'm presented with choices that cost uh, nine, fifteen, and twenty five, I might buy a fifteen pound bottle. Mm-hmm. All other things being equal. Mm-hmm. What's changed actually isn't my actual preference. It's the context within which I'm choosing. Mm-hmm. The, the, the other vital thing the Austrians did, and von Mises very beautifully wrote a paragraph in his book on human action, uh, is the understanding that it's completely wrong to make a distinction between the kind of value that's produced by making something and the kind of value that's produced by changing the context in which it's chosen or consumed. Mm-hmm. So von Mises' beautiful analogy is that he says that you can't make a distinction sensibly if you're running a restaurant between the value you create in cooking the food and the value you create in in sweeping the floor. Mm-hmm. One of them is producing perhaps the primary good, which is the thing that notionally people who go to a restaurant think they're buying, mm-hmm. which is food. Although whether that's, of course, the case is very much open to debate. They may not be buying food at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, sometimes they may be buying convenience, speed, uh, comfort, a place to sit down. Mm-hmm. Starbucks is partly selling, is notionally selling coffee, mm-hmm. but it's also selling a great deal more than that. 
But, but leaving that to one side, what von Mises would say is that it's completely wrong to make a distinction between the value you create by creating the primary good and the value you create by changing the context in which it's consumed or enjoyed. So let's take a little thought experiment. Let's imagine that uh, you're a restaurant which produces utterly fantastic food, but the whole restaurant smells of sewage and there's mm-hmm. rubbish and, you know, and, and, and fingernails dotted all over the floor. Mm-hmm. You know. um, then actually the value you create by, by, in the food is being destroyed by the appalling context in which it's consumed. The best way you can maximize the value creation and hence success of that restaurant is not by improving the food still more, it's by actually uh, sweeping the floor and getting rid of the smell. Mm-hmm. And what he says is a very eloquent defense of marketing is that uh, you know, many economists dismiss marketing because they think it's tinkering with preferences that we should be able to form on our own. Mm-hmm. He says, on the contrary, since psychologically um, our enjoyment of something is hugely determined by the, uh, by the context in which mm-hmm. we consume it, um, marketers here are actually doing the, th- the equivalent of sweeping the floor. Manufacturers might be doing the equivalent of working in the kitchen and cooking the food. Mm-hmm. But the value that's created is... Uh, inextricably linked to both of those mm-hmm. and to draw a line or distinction or a value judgment between the two which economists kind of do which is there's the worthwhile bit of a business which mm-hmm. is producing its primary good and working in the kitchen with high quality ingredients then there's the dubious bit which is sprinkling a bit of stardust on the outside that's completely wrong actually mm-hmm. the two are inextricably linked and actually in many cases you can make a terrible mistake by trying to improve the food when what needs to change is the context and do you think marketers understand that you know because particularly you know referencing back where you were talking about that actually very rarely do we have a definitive brand preference we just have a select you know the repertoire i like the way that you describe that a repertoire of acceptable brands do you think that the kind of the industry and the the professionals are are appreciating that actually you know there isn't this uh, you know definitive preference and equally um is there you know you know do we realize that we're kind of doing that sweeping of the floor as it were I don't think marketers understand it very well because I think they're partly enthralled to the conventional model. And they partly think because, of course, they're using their own consciousness as a guide. And the way we think we decide is not the same way as we decide. Mm-hmm. You may actually, in deciding you don't like that restaurant very much, you may not even be consciously aware of the smell of sewage that, that slightly permeates the place. Mm-hmm. What you'll just say is, no, I didn't like the food very much. Mm. And so occasionally we misrepresent ourselves here because we actually, we think that the primary good, because it, it, it dominates in, in research conversations, it also dominates in our own consciousness, we, we actually think it's more important than it is. And actually we don't have mental access to some of the other processes that are going on um, behind the scenes mm. simply because actually they, you know, they evolved four million years ago and actually predate consciousness. Um, so the other thing is I think we are enthralled to this idea that consumers maximize, that they go out and with their available money they try and get the best thing they possibly can. What a brilliant um, decision-making scientist and I suppose one of, the, one of the forerunners of behavioral economics, a man called Herbert Simon at Carnegie Mellon uh, did, was he created two phrases to describe human decision-making, maximizing and satisficing. Mm-hmm. Satisficing is where actually risk aversion plays a dominant role. What that is, is we're saying what I want to do is make sure, very sure that what I'm buying is not crap rather than actually trying to achieve perfection. And we satisfice much more often than we think. Uh 
So when we think about our decisions, we think about ourselves as maximizers because rationally that's how we like to think we are. Mm -hmm. In reality, a huge amount of brand selection is not because we think the brand is a guarantee of perfection, which brands actually probably aren't. Mm -hmm. What brands are is a spectacularly good uh, um, uh, provider of reassurance that what we're buying won't be rubbish. Mm -hmm. There are a variety of reasons for this. Part of this is game theory. If you've invested in a reputation, I can buy from you much more confidently because it's not in your overall economic interests to sell me something crap to make a quick buck mm -hmm. because the reputational damage that will do me is greater than any short-term gain I may make. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Mm. Um, so, but, but the game theory that plays on in our heads there, which is, yes, I'm happy buying a television from Pioneer, Toshiba or Sony. I'm a bit anxious buying a TV from Zugalo, yeah. you know, someone I've never heard of. Uh, most of that plays out in our brains at a subconscious level. Mm. The game theory actually seems to be in our heart, that element of game theory seems to be in our hardware, not in our software. Mm. And so if you ask people why they chose the Pioneer television, they said, I thought it was a better television. Mm. And do you think there's any brands that kind of, or examples of brands that are particularly good at getting that satisfying, you know, their their kind of their you know their approaches. Look, you can trust us. We might not be the best, but we're, you, you know, you'll never get you know, you never get a bad experience. Most, most most really successful mass brands are satisfier brands, not maximizer brands. I'll make a few exceptions. Anything to do with something like a wedding or a wedding anniversary, mm -hmm. you'll when you choose the restaurant, you'll maximize because you're doing it for symbolic value. Mm -hmm. If you're a huge enthusiast in an area like motorbikes, you're probably, when you buy that bike once every five years, you can afford to buy a new motorbike, you'll probably maximize because it occupies a huge amount of your conscious time and thought and effort. And you will read biking magazines, you'll talk to bikers, you'll argue with bikers, you'll go into bike shops hour after hour. And so, you know, just as foodies tend to maximize when they eat out, uh, you know, bikers tend to maximize when they buy bikes. Mm -hmm. However, someone who isn't a keen biker buying a moped is much more likely to rely on a you know, reputable brand like Yamaha 
mm-hmm. um, uh, than they are to actually uh, look for utter perfection. If you look at McDonald's, for example, its whole success is about the brilliant understanding of satisfying. Mm. Uh, Ray Kroc, the founder of McDonald's, had a brilliant behavioural insight in himself when he said, people don't want the best burger in the world, they want a burger that's just like the one they had last time. Mm-hmm. What that means is people's fear of disappointment... In other words, I'd rather not have a bad meal or an unexpectedly unpleasant meal than have a better meal. Uh It's a very, very strong um, uh, uh, mental um, uh, influence. Uh The other thing I'd add is that actually McDonald's is never the best restaurant in town. Well, not in many towns. Uh What does best mean, of course? That's another Uh question which we need to ask. But what we can say about McDonald's is it is never crap. Mm-hmm. I mean, I've been to McDonald's a lot. I've got children. I actually quite like it. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, you know, I've, I've had a stomach upset from McDonald's never. I've had a mm-hmm. stomach upset from Michelin-starred restaurants rather a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, I've never found untidy lavatories. I've never been ripped off. I've never been disappointed by the food. I've never been served rudely. Um, you know, my car's never been broken into in the car park. Mm-hmm. No, McDonald's is a fantastically good um, satisficer brand. Mm-hmm. In the sense that, you know, as a safe decision, when what you want is actually to avoid food poisoning, rip-offs and bother, rather than to achieve culinary perfection, McDonald's is is almost unimprovable. Mm. And so I, I've been talking a lot recently um, about kind of cognitive biases, you know, and where people kind of pr- perhaps act a little bit irrationally. And, and, you know, people have generally been you know quite interested in that. But one bit of feedback I have had is that, OK, that's great for these university academics who are trying very small examples, you know, of a, of a very small subset of white um, American college students. Does that apply to the rest of the world? Do you think that there's kind of for some of these patterns that are emerging via tests um that 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 kind of criticism can be leveled uh there are a few i mean bear in mind that an awful lot of what this is based on is more academically validated than a lot of what marketing thinking is based on yeah it is at least based on peer review and uh people who are first-rate statisticians Mm -hmm. uh you know uh you know whatever the obsession with mathematics in economics has done that's damaging it has produced very very good statistical ability in in you know in in questioning what is significant and what isn't Mm -hmm. there are some experiments i've heard of which they've had difficulty replicating the paradox of of choice experiment with jam Mm -hmm. uh they never seem to replicate that when they try to actually produce it again um on the other hand, there are some where I would say, first of all, you don't have to be 100%, for, for purposes of marketing, you don't mm. have to be 100% right all the time because um, context is always different. Circumstances are always different in marketing. Um, however, what you do need to know is know what's worth testing. Mm-hmm. Now, before behavioural economics came along, if I went and suggested to American Express that the main thing they should test is not the product proposition, but the design of the application form, Mm -hmm. they would have said I was completely bonkers. Now, I have at least a uh, a validated area of academic um, thought, Mm -hmm. which says, no, the choice architecture you present on the application form may be more important to the choices people make than the argument you present for those choices. Mm -hmm. So uh, the first thing to remember is that what this is is a very good platform for experimentation. And, of course, digital makes that experimentation relatively cheap. You know, in the old days of print, you had to print five different versions of the application form and all that sort of thing. In digital, testing choice architecture is comparatively cheap and easy. It, it also teaches you behavioral economics, if nothing else. I say there's one primary lesson which I think is inarguable, and this is what I argued to the House of Lords on this case, is that 
it makes the case very strongly that very small things, that things we think of as apparently irrelevant or details, can have monumental and seismic effects. Now, that knowledge in itself is of huge value to marketers, because what it says is that actually don't assume that, by, that in order to achieve significant changes in behavior, you have to necessarily spend you know, 15 million pounds on advertising and... Um, embark on vastly expensive programs, the problem that may be actually reducing your sales may be one that's comparatively trivial. And so that that focus of marketers back on the small cues and influences and prompts and frames that may have you know, massive effects on actually what people buy, while actually correcting them may cost relatively little, is a very important thing in itself. Because it also says that senior people should give some of their attention to small things. Um, what we have at present is generally senior people with power concentrate on big budget items like advertising mm-hmm. and very junior people with no power are left in charge of doing the application form or designing the, uh, you know, the checkout page from the e-tail site or whatever. Mm-hmm. What this shows us is that shouldn't necessarily be the case. Sometimes the senior people should actually focus on the small things because that's where the biggest return is to be found, that you know, the devil really is in the details. Um, I think the other thing about those experiments, yes, you could criticise them and say that rather too many are performed amongst college students, but that's starting to change. I mean, mm-hmm. if you read a book by, a um, fantastic book called Everything is Obvious by a guy called Watts, uh, he's starting to do experiments on a massive scale using online uh, mu- in, into music preference and heard effects in terms of musical taste. Mm. And... Um, uh, you know that that is dealing with a level of statistics which is you know pretty much inarguable. You also mm-hmm. get then a volume of people where you can also sub-analyze within that. Mm-hmm. You don't just get a finding which supports whatever your particular thesis is. Mm-hmm. You also end up with you know the ability to actually look at people and see are there particular people who are more influenced by peer group behavior than others, for example. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and so. Digital technology will be an extraordinary enhancement to behavioral economics as a science uh, in itself. Mm. I mean, yeah, that's the area I'm kind of really excited about because you kind of have these, you know, these scientific studies and, you know, can show some interesting things. But there's all these people who are kind of involved in things like conversion rate optimization, showing multiple items, can do these tests, you know, and can find this knowledge. So does adding an expensive item into the the category, you know, you've got laptops that are all 750 quid, does adding, you know, um, a a 1200 quid one, you know, mean that people spend a bit more because there's that anchor point. And 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 so you actually add a 1200 pound one and a 400 pound one. Mm -hmm. The vital thing is not necessarily that I can tell you the truthful answer to that, but I can tell you for sure that it's worth testing. Mm. So actually, you know, in some ways, the victory of behavioral economics isn't, isn't to say, I know the answer and I'm absolutely sure I'm right. There are cases, where I'm, there are cases by the way, where, where I, I would put money on it. Mm-hmm. You know, there are cases where I would actually put money on the thing. Um, there are cases where I wouldn't put money on the thing, but I believe that it is emphatically worth finding out. Mm-hmm. For example, two examples would be one of them is the the three hundred million dollar button, which is worth your uh, your listeners googling. Mm-hmm. Um, that's where changing a single word on a checkout procedure, little more than a single word, to be absolutely honest, it changed the word register to the word continue, and it changed a procedure where customers to an e-tail site registered and left their details before purchase to one where they could leave their details after purchase. Mm -hmm. The number of people leaving their details only dropped by a few percent, but the readiness to buy went up many, many fold. So there seems to be something in psychology, which is we regard 
the business of asking for my email address before I've given you my buy click is seen as presumptuous and is seen as sort of preemptive. And now we don't know what that is exactly, but what we do know is that those things really count. Another example, I think, is that reducing your uh, checkout procedure from three clicks and three pages down to two, if you're an e-tailer, increases your sales roughly by around 50%. Mm-hmm. Now, I'll be absolutely honest with you, that will not be 50% in all categories. You know, in the category of, you know, cars, that figure may be very, very different from the category of books or CDs. Yeah. There may be categories where the reverse is true. Mm-hmm. Okay? I'm certainly not denying it's possible that there are categories where the reverse is true, where, for example, for reasons of choice architecture, it's better to take people through the process in a, a greater sequence of steps. Mm-hmm. Um, but what, what is absolutely the vital insight from this is that um, we don't know, and it's worth finding out. It's mm-hmm. really, really worth finding out. Because if it's perfectly potential that one fairly trivial change here could actually change the fortunes of your business. And now we have the capability to make those changes much easier and much more you know, efficiently than we would have done in the past. And that's the good news, I suppose. That, 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 also, that also helps. I mean, to be absolutely honest, even in, the, even in the pre-digital world, I think it was worth doing. But it was a lot more hassle and it did cost more. And there was a limit to the number of tests you could do. Um, Google, for example, are absolutely committed behaviorists in that they will, you know, if, if they need to add a button to something, they will actually test it with nine different colors. Because they argue, look, the cost of doing this is absolutely trivial, multiplied by, you know, 600 million people. Mm-hmm. Um, the effects of getting the colour right are absolutely enormous. Fantastic. No, really appreciate that, Roy. Some really good, interesting takeaways there. I mean, I think the one that, you know, having, you know, watched your TED videos and see you talk a few times, the one that I think really are, that I, I've learned for is that concentrating on the on the small detail that, that you know, that quite often actually that's what's going to make the difference rather than sometimes, you know, the, you know, the big budget items. I think, I think that's absolutely vital. Um, and I think that also there's the value of the vocabulary of being able to talk to people, having a kind of marketing Esperanto, which can carry outside the marketing community. Uh, you can't really exaggerate that at all, the importance of that. Um, you know, I think, I think, you know, city analysts, other people will get interested in this kind of thing. Uh, and whereas at the moment, if you look at, you know, what companies are focused on, it's, it's things that, you know, the finance community find believe, to be believable narratives, mm-hmm. you know, cost-cutting, outsourcing, offshoring, all this sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, that's a very believable narrative. And you can go and stand up in front of a load of analysts and say, our competitive advantage rests in our ability to do this. Mm-hmm. Now, if we could, we could actually get um, chief executives standing up in front of analysts and saying, our other competitive advantage is simply, as is inarguably the case with Amazon, for example, mm-hmm. our competitive advantage lies in the huge repository of psychological d- data into the behavior of our customers. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I know one very interesting finance firm. It's a boutique investment house, mm-hmm. and their um, uh, their investment strategy is based very much on behavioural economics. They're called Sleep Zachariah, based in London. Mm-hmm. About fifty percent of their holdings are actually in Amazon, mm-hmm. and the reason is not not that they think that Amazon has. Uh, well, not, not only that Amazon has advantages in terms of distribution, negotiation, and everything else, Amazon also has spectacular advantages in terms of understanding the psychology of customers, what makes them buy, making it easy to buy. The ownership of one click, for example, is a behavioral thing which mm-hmm. is worth many, many millions. Amazon Prime is a spectacularly intelligent uh, 
uh, approach to um, uh, to value exchange between customers and uh, and businesses. I'm surprised actually more businesses haven't adopted the equivalent of Amazon Prime. If a hotel chain were to come to me and say, uh, let's say the Intercontinental Group or someone similar would come and say to me, okay, here's the deal. You pay us £400 a year, but every time an Intercontinental Hotel is 80% occupied or less, you can stay there for £100 a night, £50 a night or whatever. My God, am I interested. Fantastic. Cheers. Well, really, really appreciate your time, Rory. It's been a pleasure. Thank you very much. Well, that's it for today. Thank you so much for listening. You can find us on the internet at www.internetmarketingpodcast.org, where you'll find show notes, links, and instructions on how to subscribe. We would absolutely love to get feedback, comments, and questions from you. If you want to send an email, send it to kelvin.newman at sitevisibility.com. Also, feel free to comment on the website. And if you'd like to use our voice line number, if you're outside of the UK, it's plus four four one two seven three two five six one five zero. If you're inside the UK, it's o one two seven three two five six one five zero. And you can leave a voice comment or question, and we'll play it on the show. Also, we would absolutely be delighted if you would give us a, a rating on iTunes itself. Well, that's it for now. Andy White is signing off until next week on Internet Marketing. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.